Welcome to Guerrilla Radio, recorded March 1st and 4th, 2023. Well, last month, Justice Paul Rouleau held his nose and blessed Justin Trudeau's invocation of the Emergencies Act to shut down the Ottawa anti-vaccine mandate protest of 2022. This, though none of the tests within the act for doing so, were met by the actions of the Freedom Convoy. And though providing a post-imprimatur to the government's actions, even Rouleau says the means used to punish Canadians exercising their democratic rights to express political opposition to government government policy, like freezing bank accounts of participants' non-participating spouses, was flawed. He provides no legal remedies. Ray McGinnis is an author and retired educator. He says he became concerned with the disconnect between mainstream media and alternative livestream coverage of the Freedom Convoy. He subsequently attended the Public Order Emergency Commission hearings for a week in Ottawa last November, and his article on the event and its aftermath, Commission reveals that Trudeau government lied about nature of truckers' protest in Ottawa last February to justify invocation of Emergencies Act is published at Covert Action magazine. Ray McGinnis in the first half. And much has been made of the first anniversary of Russia's so-called special operation in Ukraine by the Western press. Countless hours of television and oceans of ink have been spilt to convince citizens in NATO nations of the righteousness of Kyiv's cause, and more importantly, of our noble motives in supplying its army with billions of dollars and an incomprehensible amount of high-tech weaponry. Robert Freeman is founder and executive director of the Global Uplift Project. He's a past educator and author of the Best One Hour History series of books covering history from the Renaissance and the Scientific Revolution to the Protestant Reformation, French Revolution, and Great Wars of the Last Century. Robert's recent article published at commondreams.org, Ukraine and the Tunnel at the End of the Light, is a hard-eyed assessment of both the disaster that is the Ukraine-Russia war and and the doomed political and economic dynamics behind the conflict. Robert Freeman and shedding the rosy aura around Ukraine's war prospects in the second half. But first, Ray McGuinness and the Freedom Convoy's hard-learned lessons for Canadians. Welcome to the program, Ray. Great to be with you, Chris. Well, it's my great pleasure, of course. Now, Ray, I'd like to pick up the story, if not at its end, then at least at the beginning of its end, with Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance Chrystia Freeland's assertion regarding the protests and the emergencies econo- or the emergency economic measures order used to attach the bank accounts of whomever the government chose to do. Uh, she said, and I quote her, in the very horrible event that this ever has to happen again, for sure there are some lessons for us. As a, as a past writing teacher, Ray, and a, and a practiced parser of language, what does Miss Freeland's statement there say to you? Could you understand it, first well, of all? Well, she, she is saying that she's acknowledging that we can all learn something from the events that have happened and the government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. And there certainly are some lessons for us. One of the lessons, I mean, economic the economics of the country, you know, whether the country's, uh, you know, inflation goes up and down, whether or not the there's a depression, like in the Great Depression, all of those things are not triggers for invoking an Emergencies Act. One of the lessons that we could learn is instead of using modeling to predict what might be happening regarding uh, blockades at the Ambassador Bridge or anything else, would be to draw on the actual Statistics Canada data, which showed that, uh, you know, despite the disruptions, 
trucks were going around the Ambassador Bridge to other ports of entry nearby, an inconvenience to be sure, but uh, they carried on bringing a product you know, to, into Canada. And at the end of the day, uh, Statistics Canada showed that there was actually an increase in, you know, in, in trade for the month of February 2022, despite the inconvenience, understandably, and so on. So there's one thing we can learn. We can also learn that, that the government chose at every turn uh, to uh, catastrophize, per, generously perhaps, about, about all that was going on about them. Uh, you have people like Janice Charay, the clerk of the Privy Council, telling people in the incident response group, uh, we need to, uh, you know, nothing is too crazy. Think outside the box. But no matter how much they thought outside about the box to wonder about what was happening on the ground, no one thought to go and speak to the protesters. And people have spoken to protesters. I mean, in Ottawa, we have nearly 100 days a year. Typically, there are protesters on Parliament Hill about something. And uh, we have situations, you know, going back to 1935 when there was an on to Ottawa trek from Regina and originally from Vancouver and the protesters and, and Prime Minister R.B. Bennett did not agree at all about, uh, about things. But nonetheless, the Prime Minister Bennett met with eight of the protest leaders and actually there was a heated debate and, and they, were, they were escorted uh, by armed guards out of the room. But nonetheless, even R.B. Bennett met with the protesters in 1935. So the surprise uh, is that unlike in 2020, when there were protests by First Nations persons primarily between early January 2020 and around the 20th of March 2020, we have via rail for passenger service, freight rail uh, across the country for over a month in each case, closed down. We have a highway in, in, in Ontario blockaded. We have a pipeline under construction in British Columbia blockaded. We have multiple ferry sailings on the west coast of uh, British Columbia also being uh, interrupted and, and more. Throughout the whole 11 weeks of all of that, the Trudeau government's position and the prime minister said, what we have to do is sit down and, you know, understand these people and negotiate with them. And so it was reasonable for the protesters who were traveling to Ottawa to think that they could meet with somebody. And even if they hadn't agreed that there would be at least some possibility of, of talking to a junior minister or deputy minister and, uh, you know, public health agency of Canada, uh, folks to, to say, you know, where's the beef? Why is Canada, I mean, Canada and the U.S., uh, Mexico and the U.S., being almost the outliers around the whole globe where other, other nations, regardless of their particular pandemic restrictions for unvaccinated citizens, nonetheless, other countries around the world regarded truck drivers as essential workers, essential services, important to the supply chain, important to the health of the economy, and, uh, and truck drivers were you know, going across the uh, Thailand, Cambodia border, all over Central America, South America, Europe, and so on, uh, without, in, without interruption, because those governments said these people uh, are important to the health of the economy. And so ironically, the, you know, Christopher Freeland is making a big deal about, uh, about the economic well-being. And, and what, what, what one of the things, the lessons that they could learn is, instead of shutting down, you know, stopping maybe 30,000 truck drivers from crossing the border in Canada, and now all of that product has to be put on planes 
that are flying into Toronto and other places where there's already all this chaos regarding passports and so on, adding to the, to the Shema. So there's a lot of lessons they could learn. Well, it seems particularly disingenuous. I know that the, during at the moment, the Ambassador Bridge blockade was was a big point for the government, and yet they're willing to throw all of these truckers under their rigs, these people that cross back and forth that are the heart of this trade to begin with. Uh, so to say that that, that the, the big issue was the trade at the Ambassador Bridge seems uh, a, a bit of a, a bit hard to swallow. I took her statement, though, Ray, when she said in the very horrible event that this ever has to happen again, to mean, first of all, the horrible event is invoking of the Emergencies Act. And she was taking the imprimatur, as I mentioned in the introduction, mm-hmm. of uh, the, the hearing of, of Justice Paul Rouleau to mm-hmm. say firstly to Canadians that this act is going to stay on the books and that we will, uh, although we'll do it reluctantly, we'll, we, we will invoke this again. But if we do, it has to happen. So this is the lesson I think that she's taking is one that the horrible event will occur and will be in, uh, inflicted on Canadians again at the choosing of either her government or whichever governments uh, follow it, even though that order, and uh, you write about this in your article, Justice uh, Paul Rouleau, he said he was reluctantly granting that this was a legitimate uh, move on the government's part. For those Canadians, now the, the report, his report, by the way, is more than 2,000 pages. I doubt mm-hmm. that there's a handful of Canadians that have read, read it straight through. You yeah. were at the hearings. Uh, how much of this report have you read? And can you boil it down uh, for those Canadians that don't have that kind of patience mm-hmm. to tell us just what does, what does this, what does it mean for us? Yeah, I've read, I've read through the, uh, the the overview uh, from from the first you know 275 pages, mm-hmm. and I was there for for a week of the proceedings in mid mid November. Uh, one of the things that it means is that I mean the government can continue using its talking points about about well we invoked the Emergencies Act because of the Ambassador Bridge. And, you know, unless the listener is paying attention, they may forget that the Ambassador Bridge was solved. But by the end of the 13th, the day before the invocation, the day of the 13th of February, the Ambassador Bridge was clear and, and, and trucks were moving by late that evening. We'll also forget that uh, you know we live in a society where people are innocent until proven guilty, but nonetheless, there are people who have been charged with weapons possessions north of Coots, Alberta. Uh, still, those people were arrested by the RCMP under the existing laws of the land. You know, there's all this uh, discussion in the in the in the report and and at testimony before the commission around handing around obtaining tow trucks to tow away the vehicles. Yet we have the uh, the documents now from the protest leaders signed by Tamara Litch and also by the mayor of Ottawa, Jim Watson, on the 12th of February. They had agreed that 75 percent of all of the vehicles in downtown would be removed by the 16th of February. And the city staff, uh, Kim Iote, Steve Kanalakos, and other people had had taken photographs of every single vehicle that was leaving uh, the downtown area. And by noon on the 14th, the day of the invocation, which happened four and a half hours later, 102 vehicles had left. You know, the documentation is clear that the protesters were were making good on the deal, uh, despite uh, misrepresentations in the media. And if the prime minister just held off 
uh, of invoking the act, he would have found that by the 16th, 75% of all the vehicles would have been gone. And you don't need to tow trucks that have already left a parking area. Uh, you know, what, what Rouleau has most disturbingly concluded, uh, there was lots of discussion throughout all of the people uh, you know, Marco Mendocino, the prime minister and others were saying, well, we invoked the Emergencies Act because the police or the intelligence services had requested us to invoke the act. But uh, one, one, you know, intelligence uh, superintendent after the next, Patrick Morris with the Ontario Provincial Police, um, Thomas Carrick, uh, Brenda Lucky with the RCMP, uh, Director David Vigneault with CSIS, the um, Canada Border Services Agency, John Oskowski. Everyone, when asked, uh, did you ask the, uh, the government to invoke the Emergencies Act? They all said no. And, and so the, the government seemed to want to have a showdown. When Prime Minister Trudeau was asked on the stand by, uh, by the lead counsel for the commission, uh, Shantona Chaudhry, um, you know, when, when did invoking the Emergencies Act become a possibility for you? And his answer was, from the very beginning. So uh, it seems that the government really wanted to, you know, were, were hoping with their inflammatory rhetoric to get the protesters, you know, to do something violent. And there, there never were any, you know, or, or, you know be, to, the, to the point where on the 14th when there were, when the act was invoked, there were five arrests for assault in, in, the, in, in, in the downtown Ottawa area. But we still don't know if those five individuals who were arrested, if they had anything to do with the protest. And it seems that if, there were, if any of them had, that they'd be on the front cover of McLean's magazine or something by now, because the most serious uh, arrests were like Tamara Lich for, uh, for counseling mischief. So the, you know, the, 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 the difference between, you know, Rouleau mistakenly, you know, refers time and again in his report to unlawful behavior of the protesters. And yet Ontario Provincial Justice Hugh McLean on both the 7th of February when he, when he had the injunction against horn honking uh, and also on the 16th of February, two days after the invocation of the act, declared that the protests were legal. And so, uh, and apparently Rouleau didn't realize until after his report came out on the 17th of February that Justice McLean had had reiterated for a second time that the protests were legal. It's really inexplicable. As I recall, the, it would have been such uh, uh, an onerous task that the logistics alone of trying to tow these rigs wasn't really possible. It was just part of a threat by the government because they were saying, well, we're, we're going to tow your rig and we're going to hold it hostage and then you're not going to be able to work, they were saying to the truckers. So it was really just another, uh, another way to leverage them into leaving. But that wasn't the only lever that was being used. Do you want to talk a little bit about the threat to not only seize people's bank accounts and, and their assets, but also to seize their children? The Ottawa Police Service interim chief Steve Bell was you know, recommending and suggesting the, the, the Children's Aid Society was blindsided by the press conference announcement that they would be you know, apprehending you know, children from the, from, the truck, from, the, from the protesters, from the protest vehicles. Uh, 25% of the protesters had children with them. I mean, we have thousands of children that are, that are part of this protest. And the children are playing ball hockey uh, or, 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 or skating with puck. They are, um, they are making snow sculptures. 
they're making snowmen, snow angels. They're sitting with their parents, uh, having chicken noodle soup or samosas uh, in, in the heated uh, cabin of the trucks. I mean, all of the uh, things that the children are doing are, are not dangerous at all. Plus, it's, uh, you know, uh, Patrick uh, Morris of the OPP said that he was, quote, shocked by the lack of criminality uh, and, <laughs> and, and, had, and had determined that there was no threat to the nation. And over and over again, when people, even National Security Advisor to the Prime Minister, Jody Thomas, was taken through the, te the four tests for invoking the Emergencies Act according to the legislation uh, of the Emergencies Act in, in July of 1988. Was there any espionage? No. Was there any sabotage? No. Uh, there was no, um, no plot to overthrow the government. And then when Jody Thomas is asked uh, about serious acts of violence, she says there was uh, continual violence. So she swaps out the word serious and and, and imports continual violence. And then when she's asked, what do you mean by that? She says, well, there was honking. Well, the honking, uh, you know, I mean, honking is not a reason to invoke an emergency act, but nonetheless, the injunction on the 7th of February uh, by the provincial court was taken seriously, and Tom Morazzo and others uh, and the protest leaders would make sure all the block captains, if there was, and occasionally there was, a rogue truck driver that wanted to honk a horn uh, in the following days, they would go up to that truck driver and say, unless you stop honking right now, we're going to cut your wires to your air horn. And they would stop. So, so was 100% of the honking stopped? No, but almost all of it did stop. And nonetheless, uh, as the RCMP correspondence that was entered as evidence shows, it doesn't matter whether, you know, what the decibel level of an air horn is, you know, never mind a rock concert that's supposed to end at 11 p.m. going to 1.30 in the morning or any other kind of noise uh, uh, violations, noise violations do not trigger a national emergency. And, and so, you know, what, what you end up with is, is none of the four tests uh, that have been on the books since 1988 uh, were, uh, were violated over and over again. And, and, but, but yet you have people like Deputy uh, Privy uh, Clerk to the Privy Council, Natalie Drouin, saying, you know, ch children were being used as human shields. I mean, this is a gross misrepresentation of what the children playing uh, to making a snow sculpture, playing with, with, with large Lego outside in the snow were doing. And, and so Justice Rouleau now, at here, having heard how dubious the government's argument is, you know, given that none of the four tests were met, you know, because, I mean, Jody Thomas uh, reaches after reaching for honking, says, well, there was pollution. I mean, honestly, there's pollution in a lot of uh, creeks and rivers and all kinds of First Nations, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, <laughs> homes across the country that haven't been dealt with. If it's well, I wonder, pollution. I wonder how many First Nations truck drivers they were at this who, when they hear the, the, the threat to steal their children, what kind of effect that would have given Canada's history on them. Uh, and it, as far as you're mentioning the act, well, there was an, exist, an existing Emergencies Act, uh, 1988, as you mentioned. Uh, uh, but that, that was another part of the disingen disingenuous response for the government who were, on the one hand, as I remember it, trying to intimate that, oh, well, this, this is an archaic document that really has to be brought up into the 21st century as, as though it was, it was written by Prime Minister McDonald or some such. But if you've just yeah. tuned in, you're listening to Guerrilla Radio. I'm talking today with Ray McGinnis. Ray's an author. He's a retired educator. 
He says he became concerned with the disconnect between mainstream media and alternative live stream coverage of the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa in 2022. He's also an author. He's uh, penned the books Writing the Sacred, A Psalm-Inspired Path to Appreciating and Writing Sacred Poetry, and Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. Well, I certainly applaud your courage, Ray, in, in tackling these lengthy reports, 2,000 plus pages in the case of the commission on the event that invoked, uh, prompted Trudeau's invocation of the Emergencies Act as revised uh, on St. Valentine's Day, the yeah. St. Valentine's Day massacre of Canadian rights and freedoms. Ray has also written, uh, commission reveals that Trudeau government lied about nature of truckers' protest in Ottawa last February to justify invocation of Emergencies Act. Well, uh, let's get... Uh, past the, the legalese this is, oh, well, it, maybe, it is it, sorry? maybe one thing just to add so okay. what rouleau has done now after listening to all the debate about you know were these tests met no he's now recommending going forward that if a government wants to invoke the emergencies act it won't have to have these kind of threshold markers of espionage and um, sabotage uh, real, actual threats uh, of, of violence or plot to overthrow the government to be there uh, as a kind of a checklist. He says, remove them all. Now, what we can, all we need to do is the government only has to have a sense that there are perceived threats. Mm -hmm. So this really lowers the bar, uh, even though he's saying he's trying to keep it s steady. It really lowers the bar. I mean, anybody with uh, with any kind of who's prone to anxiety or catastrophizing can, can who's in government in a position of leadership can now feel anxious, feel worried, feel threatened about something possibly happening. And then they can go ahead and invoke the, the emergencies act. Well, we've seen this kind of language with police officers who shoot and kill people after the fact saying, well, no, the person didn't have a weapon that I could see, but I felt threatened or something to this effect so that after the fact they can justify anything. And it's 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 telling to me that the, the use of the term using uh, using the children as human shields where that, that suggests to me that there's a frustration on the part of authorities that these children are being used to protect the people from state violence, as we see so often in Israel. Israel, Palestine, uh, and in this case saying, well, they're there to protect these people from our righteous uh, uh, mounting of a violent attack against them, which they did do, the government did do, and we all remember the pictures of the horse charge going yeah. into the civilians, uh, young, old men, women, and children, uh, as if they were with the light brigade or some such thing. Do you want to talk about what happened now after this act, what, uh, after the Emergencies Act was invoked and the police actions after that point? Yeah. I mean, you know, if you've got, you've got on your testimony, you've got Bill Blair in the cabinet saying that, that the police action was textbook, you know, it was peaceful. And yet, and yet there's all kinds of, of live stream video, people with their cell phones that went up on, on YouTube and other places where you could see that police are, you know, tr with horses trampling a couple of individuals, including an indigenous uh, wo Mohawk woman, uh, Candace Cerro. You have people, um, Margaret Hope Braun talked about having a barrel of a rifle in front of her, uh, other people, uh, Chris Deering testified about being, you know, kicked over and over again, although he was an injured veteran. And, uh, you know, people being hit with the butt of a rifle, with the end of a rifle. And so 
there was an awful lot of police brutality. Plus, uh, as evidence, plenty of, of text messages between people who were in the police that were, you know, looking forward to kick ass or feeling it was really, you know, describing the trampling of, of citizens of Canada uh, by the horses as, quote, awesome. Yeah, and you quote Bill Blair, or you, you cite Bill Blair's uh, quote that it in part uh, restored my pride in my profession. Bill Blair is the current uh, Minister of Emergency emergency preparedness. Uh, I don't know what he meant by his profession, if it restored pride in his profession as a politician in the Trudeau government, but it sounds to me more like in talking about the police, it restored his pride in his profession as a police officer. So he's acting not as a minister of the crown, but as a police officer at heart. And he was the police officer, as I recall, in charge of the G20 Toronto police riot in 2020. 10 with bill Mayer, with bill blair at the lead yeah and 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 what what the government has done too and and as long as you keep on using this inflammatory rhetoric about people being terrorists mercenaries insurrectionists children as as as, as human shields and so on it obscures it makes it makes people think that that the government's option to reach for the the what is supposed to be a last resort uh, given every other option is not available but it was always available for for uh, you know for for authorities just like they did for f- 5 months or so in Quebec they could always have to have uh, have uh, had invoked a curfew and said no one's allowed in the downtown streets after 8 p.m. at night in Ottawa they could have always you know the police never never judged the uh, they always believed it was legal so they never used the riot act but if they could they but if they had decided it was it was unruly to the point of a riot like it was in Vancouver when we lost against the Boston Bruins in 2011 or so then um, then they could have declared it to be a riot and they would have you know, arrests are arresting people if it was a riot. They could have also used the National Defense Act and, and, and called in the army. All of these things are, are things that would be less extreme than the extreme uh, decision that the government made. And so a lot of, one of the lessons that unfortunately a lot of Canadians are using is that it's almost as though there's no, there's no awareness of what the laws of the land allow the police or the, even the army to do. In, in case of any kind of disruption of any kind. So uh, never mind sitting down. You know, what would have happened if, uh, if the leader, of, uh, you know, opposition uh, uh, leader of the New Democratic Party of the traditionally the Workers' Party, Jagmeet Singh, had gone into the crowd and shook hands with some of the many Sikh truck drivers and talked with them. Maybe he could have brokered a deal to have some discussion. And no matter how well or poorly that might have gone, it could have diffused the situation. Yeah, but, and we have to remember that the junior partner in the government, in the coalition government, the NDP, uh, acquiesced uh, with with the Liberals on this before the fact, not meeting anybody, as you mentioned, as they've acquiesced on so many other things as well, including the war in Ukraine. Ray, we're going to break it here. If you if you have the time, I'd like to continue. But for this uh, format, we're going to break, and I'll come back with Robert Freeman after the break, uh, and we're going to talk about his article at Common Dreams, Ukraine and the Tunnel at the End of the Light. But for now, Ray, thanks a lot for coming on, and I want people to go to uh, uh, see Ray's um, uh, article at Covert Action Magazine. Commission reveals that Trudeau government lied about nature of truckers' protest in Ottawa last February to justify invocation of Emergencies Act. Thanks again, Ray. Thanks so much, Chris. (laughs) 
Moscow, Tokyo, New York, Gorilla Radio is everywhere at gorilla-radio.com. Everywhere, all the time. to Guerrilla Radio. While much has been made of the first anniversary of Russia's so-called special operation in Ukraine by the Western press, countless hours of television and oceans of ink have been spilt to convince citizens of NATO nations of the righteousness of Kyiv's cause and, more importantly, our noble motives in supplying its army with billions of dollars and an incomprehensible amount of high-tech weaponry. In fact, Washington et al. has invested so much in the successful outcome of the war, for now, officially accepting the effort has been a tragic folly is all but impossible. But just off camera, the reality chorus is growing more voluble. Robert Freeman is founder and executive director of the Global Uplift Project. He's a past educator and author of the best one-hour history series of books covering history from the Renaissance and the Scientific Revolution to the Protestant Reformation, French Revolution, and the Great Wars of the last century. Robert's recent article published at commondreams.org, Ukraine and the Tunnel at the end of the light is a hard-eyed assessment of both the disaster that is the Ukraine-Russia war and the doomed political and economic dynamics behind the conflict. Well, welcome to the program, Robert. Thank you. Well, Good well, to be now, here. Well, it's my great pleasure, of course, to have you now, Robert. Before getting to your excellent article over at uh, Common Dreams, who and what exactly is the Global Uplift Project? The Global Uplift Project is a nonprofit that I founded in 2007. We build small-scale infrastructure projects in the developing world, classrooms, medical clinics, uh, water wells, latrines, playgrounds, science labs, libraries, very small-scale, cost about $10,000 a piece, projects that dramatically improve the capacity of a local people to to take care of themselves, to develop themselves. Since we started in 2007, we've done 287 
of these projects in 24 of the poorest countries in the world. Yeah, and I'm just looking at your website now. It's letters tgup.org, tgup.org. How about some of these people that you're working with? Uh, how long did it take you to, to assemble all of these collaborators? Well, it's taken the 15 years <laughs> since we've been doing it. That's, that's almost our most valuable asset is a network of operators on the ground in 24 of the poorest countries in the world that we have deep sustaining relationships with. So I can pick up the phone. It's actually the email. And in any number of countries within a matter of hours have a classroom started or a medical clinic started or a science lab or a latrine or any of those other things that I talked about. The thing that two things that are really unique about TGUP are these. Number one, anybody can participate at any level that they want. You can donate $1 and say, I wanted to go to that classroom in Kenya. Or you can donate $10,000 and say, I want to go to that vocational training center in Tanzania. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. I've raised money from private foundations that cover all of our operating costs, literature, phones, website, travel, software subscriptions. Because of that, every single dollar that an individual donates goes into their designated project. I'm not aware of any other charity in the world that can do that and demonstrate it. That's important as well, because uh, I know in my own uh, in my own case, I when I was a younger man, I visited uh, Guatemala, for example, and I saw the the grinding poverty firsthand. Oh. And so ever since I have a soft spot for uh, Guatemala. And uh, I know that those conditions exist in other countries, but because I was there, because I saw it, and I'm sure it's the same for other people who say they would like to support some of your uh, many um, projects around the world. Oh, unless you have been there like you have, and thank you for mentioning that. Unless you've been there, you cannot imagine how bad it is. Most places in the world don't have running water. That means they don't have sewage. So what are you going to do with the poop? You know, if you're walking around ankle deep in your own poop, you're dying from the E. coli. They don't have education. They don't have health care. They don't have infrastructure. There's no electricity. So there's no refrigeration. So there's no food security. I could go on and on. The things that we take for granted, you know, you could be the poorest person in this country and you still get 12 years of free pretty good quality education. And if you can't afford the meals, the government will buy you two meals a day. And if you break your arm and fall down, you can go into any emergency room in this country and they will fix it for free. I could go on and on for hours about the infrastructure that we've spent trillions of dollars accumulating that's available to everybody in this country, but that is almost magic to anybody outside of this country. Over their lives, they will help about 2 million people. About 2 million of the poorest people in the world have just a slightly better chance in life. Well, now, now, Robert, of course, uh, your article is more about geopolitics and geopol this is These two things aren't divorced at all. In fact, that the conditions that we see much of the world living under are directly related to the rich countries spending their resources on war and war making and maximizing profit for their home corporations. Yes. Tell me about your association, Robert, with commondreams.org. You've, you've got quite a few articles up there, as well as one we're going to talk about Ukraine and the tunnel at the end of the light. Well, I've been writing for Common Dreams since 2003. I guess that makes it 20 years. You know how wow, time yeah. gets away from you so fast. And what, well, a 20, and what a 20 years it's been. 
It's tumultuous. It it sounds like a cliche, and it probably is in every epic. But you're we're in the middle of a transformational epic in global affairs, and that's basically what I write about: the transformation. You know, the power structures that promote it, those that resist it, the ways they resist it, and how people can be engaged with it. Well, in your article again, Ukraine in the tunnel at the end of the light. It's it's a, a play on words. On the the, can you describe what you mean by that? Well, the, the tunnel, you're right, it's a play on words. It's a play on the phrase light at the end of the tunnel. And those of her, who are of a certain age will remember the Vietnam War. It was always, don't worry, there's light at the end of this tunnel. And no matter how bad the losses are, it's going to be good. Robert McNamara, in not, who was the Secretary of Defense in 1967, mounted a national campaign to persuade the American people, don't worry, we know your sons are coming home in body bags, but this is going to be worth it. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Of course, it was all a lie. The Tet Offensive in 1968 blew the whole thing out of the water. The North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong irregulars in the South mounted a, well, they attacked more than 100 U.S. military installations throughout the South simultaneously. It completely blew apart the fiction that there was light at the end of the tunnel. So my article, as you say, is a play on words. It says there's a tunnel at the end of the light. And what I mean by that is this. Up until now, all the coverage in the mainstream media has been, it's all about light. You know, those plucky Ukrainians, they're socking it to those plod-footed Russians, and they're eventually going to win, and democracy is going to prevail, and it's going to be beauty and light, and God bless America. That's what it's been up until now. It hasn't been, if you follow the mainstream media. In fact, if you get your information outside of the mainstream media, it's quite a different story. The U.S. and its proxy, the Ukrainians, are losing badly and have been since the beginning of the war. Within the first week, the Russians took out the Ukrainians' air force and their air defense systems. In the second week, they took out the weapons depots and the armories. In the third week and following after that, they systematically took out the artillery that was being shipped in from former Warsaw Pact countries, they took out all of the artillery. They've since then go, gone after the fuel delivery systems, the transportation infrastructure. In the last oh, couple of months since December, they have taken out more than half of the electrical generation and transmission infrastructure. This is not a light at the end of the tunnel story. It's a tunnel at the end of the light. Now, there's a second half to that narrative, and that is this. The U.S. will end up losing this war and has to find a way to get out of it while trying to save face. But there's not going to be a face-saving exit because of this. The rest of the world, what I call what is generally called the global south, has seen the ways that the U.S. and the West conduct itself in the world, and they're sick of it. And they're setting up a non-Western, multipolar world order where they can trade among themselves, respect each other's sovereignty, mutual promotion of economic benefits, all without involvement by the Western world. No trade, no dollars, nothing. And that is the real tunnel at the end of the light because it dramatically narrows the U.S. strategic opportunities in the world. It will not be able to conduct itself as it has since World War II when it was a giant among pygmies. It will not be able to go around and brutalize and destroy and carry out coups and intimidate and expropriate nations of the world, as has been its habit since World War II. 
And that shrunken field of strategic opportunity, the shrunken strategic primacy is what I mean by the tunnel at the end of a line. Well, Does that make sense? Well, it does to me, but I don't think that the people in the United States or Canada or the the so-called Western world are are really getting the message, not through their their regular media sources, for sure. During the Vietnam War, another uh, a common trope was we're fighting over there so that we don't have to fight the Russians over here. We're seeing that that has been uh, regurgitated in this instance, the implication being that Russia is on a war of expansion right now and that Ukraine is the first domino to fall. The other the other thing that people are saying uh, on the other side of that is that America is willing to fight the Russians in Ukraine right to the last Ukrainian, but perhaps not to send their own troops in. You write an estimate of 150,000 Ukrainian troops have been lost. Uh, and I'm assuming you mean killed outright, not to mention the probably three times that number wounded in some in one way or another. What about the human cost over there? Well, you're exactly right. The best estimates we have. Now, in December, Ursula von der Leyen, who is the president of the European Commission, probably the highest political figure in all of Europe, he said, Ukrainians already lost 100,000 people. Now, that's a pretty incredible statement because, remember, she's on the side of the Ukrainians. But what she's implicitly saying is these losses are unsustainable. If you compare them, for example, in the the Vietnam War, the United States lost 58,000 soldiers, but that was over a period of nine years. If you take the one year that the Ukrainians have been fighting, and the 100,000 is now pretty well understood to be 150,000, the Ukrainians are losing soldiers at a rate of 140 times what the U.S. loss was in Vietnam. And it is patently unsustainable. That's part of the fact that the war by the Ukrainians is not winnable. They're out of soldiers. 10 million of their 36 million people have left the country. Those that have left who can already fight have already been fighting. They're down now to dragooning 16-year-old boys and 60-year-old men to come and try to fight in the in the trenches. So the losses are staggering. They're vastly, vastly outweigh anything the U.S. experienced in Vietnam. Well, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Grill Radio. I'm today speaking with Robert Freeman. Robert is the founder and executive director of the Global Uplift Project. You can go to TGUP dot org to find out what they're doing he's also a past educator and author of the best one hour history series of books and they cover history from the renaissance and the scientific revolution to the protestant reformation french revolution and the great wars of the last century among other topics we're speaking today about robert's recent article published at commondreams.org ukraine and the tunnel at the end of the light and you've written another article in december uh, again at common dreams uh, on what you term as Peak Zelensky, and this was written just after Christmas. Can you describe what you mean by Peak Zelensky? I don't know if you remember uh, his tour of the U.S. in December to try to raise money and you know keep the faith alive, but it, it was becoming ludicrous. He's receiving, first of all, before he became president of Ukraine, he was a comic. He was a comedian on a Ukrainian television show. His greatest claim to fame was that he could play the piano with his penis. And he used to do that in some of his, I'm serious, he used to do that in some of his stand-up comedy routines. And the government is a crypto-fascist oligarchy. It is in no way a democracy. 
He has shut down opposition media. He's banned opposition political parties. He has jailed those who have protested against his policies. So he kind of has the audacity, but it's not his own fault because this is scripted by the American intelligence community to come here and say, this is democracy fighting against autocracy. Like you said, we have to fight him over there so we don't have to fight him here. He goes to the U.S. Congress, stands in the well of the U.S. Congress and receives 18 standing ovations. He's compared in the media to Winston Churchill, who basically helped the British win World War II, and he's named Times Man of the Year. How much more farcical, literally farcical, how much overhyped can it get that this guy who is the president of the poorest, most corrupt nation in Europe and is running a crypto-fascist oligarchy, this guy's going to be the next Winston Churchill and the Time Man of the Year? That's what I meant by peak Zelensky. It, it, it literally, we can't get any more hyperbolic about over, you know, promoting who this guy is and what the mission is. And so my point of that article was it can only go down from here. Well, and two, two months later, Zelensky is still marching on. And I, I, I think he doesn't believe, at least in the media in the West, doesn't believe that his peak is reached because they keep promoting him with these uh, same ridiculous situations and, and settings. Uh, and maybe he is the next Winston Churchill. Uh, Churchill's biography, if people looked a little deeper than the Second World War, they might be surprised <laughs> at what they find. You mentioned, now I said off the top that, you know, it's it's not really uh, uh, mentionable right now that this war is lost. But Mark Miley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, if it was, if I remember right, it was back in September. He first began floating the idea that that this was a lost cause and that America was throwing good money after bad. Uh, and speaking of uh, Van, uh, uh, von der in Germany, uh, just last over the weekend, there was fifty thousand in Berlin uh, protesting the war, and there was a human chain holding hands between Osnabrück and uh, Munster, two cities that were. Um, integral in ending the 30 years war and signing the truce that ended that uh, 17th century conflict does Miley signal the fact that it is becoming now palatable within the political circles in DC to start actually floating the idea that uh, this is a lost cause and America and its allies would be better to back out as quickly and as gracefully as you mentioned as they can. Well, that's exactly the case. And it's significant that Milley is a general. He's a military guy. He's not a political guy, is he? And he said, I think his quote was, it will be very, very difficult to remove the Russians from all the Ukrainian territory. Essentially saying, we're not going to win this thing. You know, they're in there. We're not going to get them out. Now, he got his knuckles wrapped and had to get back on the on the program with the, the conventional, the accepted narrative. But it, it's starting to leak out everywhere. You've got Anthony Blinken saying, well, we would consider a peace going back to the pre-2024, I'm sorry, 2022. That's a very significant climb down from the original position. That, no, we're going to have to go back to pre-2014, back to Crimea. So Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, is already starting to moot that, you know, we would be willing to, to settle this thing on terms that are less than we've advertised. You got Newsweek saying this is a headline from Newsweek in January. Biden has offered Putin 20% of Ukraine in order to end the war. You got the Washington Post in an article a couple of weeks ago going, look, we've got to be realistic. There are limits. There are limits to what we're going to be able to do in Ukraine, and we're beginning to approach them. You got the Rand Corporation, which is one of the most 
important strategic advisors to the U.S. intelligence community saying, and this is a quote, costs of a long war greatly outweigh the benefits. So no matter where you take it from, whether it's the military people, whether it's the press, whether it's the intelligence services, the State Department, they're all starting to say, and this was, this was the real burden, the real import of the article. They're all starting to say, boy, this thing is a losing cause. We got to figure out how to get out. 90% of the world is not supporting us in Ukraine. This might be one of the more interesting stories, the hermetic bubble that the American public lives in, thanks to its mainstream media, largely owned by the weapons makers, that want to say, oh, yeah, this is a good fight. We're winning, blah, blah, blah. But the reality being most of the world does not support it. And we could go into why that is, but it's very significant as far as why they will likely be successful setting up a multipolar world order that says, thank you, America. We experienced 80 years since the end of World War II with a unipolar world order. We don't want it anymore. We're out of here. We're taking our toys with us. And that's the tunnel at the that's the tunnel at the end of the light. Your article, though, as well, it's subtitled China about China's Belt and Road Initiative. The picture on the front is uh, uh, accompanying your article isn't of Ukraine, but it's actually of engineers in, in a massive tunnel in Indonesia, part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Your article goes into, which I found most fascinating, highlighting the uh, the contrast between America and its allies and, and what their vision of the world is and this great economic and uh, political development, this tsunami of uh, change for a new century represented by the BRI. Can you explain what's the BRI? Well, let me, let me step back from that and put it into a context. Back in the early 20th century, a, British geostrategist named Alfred Mackinder put forth the theory that a integrated Europe, Eurasia, integrated Eurasia would constitute the greatest power in the world. And ever since then, the U.S.'s principal objective in all of its foreign policies has been to prevent a integrated Eurasia. And if you notice, we blew up the Nord Stream pipeline in September of last year. Why? because that was connecting Germany with Russia for the delivery of huge volumes of low-cost gas. That is, it was affecting Eurasian integration. Now, the Belt and Road Initiative is a policy construct that was begun by the Chinese in 2013. And what it does is it delivers infrastructure to all of the nations of Asia and potentially Eurasia, if Europe wants to get on board for it. I'm talking highways, high-speed rail, electrical uh, generation and transmission, communication, ports, cities, all of the infrastructure that it takes to build an advanced international economy. And my point of departure for this, so people understand it, is it was infrastructure that made the United States. If you go back to the 19th century, the 1800s, it was the railroads that stitched together the first continental scale economy in the history of the world. Why is that important? Because of this, American producers could produce for a larger scale economy, therefore produce at larger scale and therefore at lower cost. And they were the highest volume, lowest cost producers in the world. In 1800, the US constituted 1.5% of global GDP. 
By 1900, they were taking 19% of a four times larger number, and the U.S. was the largest economy in the world. Fast forward to the 20th century, exactly the same thing happened in automobiles. It wasn't Henry Ford and the mass production of automobiles that made the 20th century the American century. It was the fact that we built continental network of roads, asphalt and concrete highways that stitched together every single street address in the country, developed the world's largest markets for steel, rubber, plastic, gas, machine tools, developed the entire panoply of culture that we know of as suburbia. And it was the fact of that infrastructure that made it possible, once again, for producers to produce at continental scales, providing to the largest market in the world, and therefore to be able to produce at the lowest cost in the world. That is the economic basis for American primacy from 1800 up to 2000. Now, the Chinese are going to do the exact same thing, except on a scale that's about 30 times larger. When Eisenhower developed his interstate highway system, there were 150 million people in the United States. There are 5 billion people in Eurasia. And this is China's very, very savvy strategic program to knit all of them together in an economic enterprise that they're bound to China for mutual, for reciprocal mutual advantage. It's estimated that it, it's estimated that it will it will consume somewhere between thirty and fifty trillion dollars before the century is out. Well, and, and when you mentioned the the huge financial effects and cultural effects of the highway system in America in the twentieth century, it just it boggles the mind to think of the kind of effects that the BRI will have in the in the latter part of this century. As you, as you mentioned, that the scope and size of it is just dwarfing anything that's ever been done before. Robert, we're fast running out of time, but there is another aspect when you talked about America's great economic primacy in the or the 20th century, in the late 20th century and into our current times now, that primacy is based, is a dollar-based primacy. In the last couple of minutes, you you write about in your article, the financial situation and how America's fiat dollar, it's not going to enjoy that primacy for much longer by the looks of things. Well, it's not. It's important. Most people don't understand this, that in 1971, Richard Nixon took the U.S. off of gold convertibility for the dollar. U.S. was running out of gold because it was running, you know, enormous deficits in Vietnam and with the Great Society programs. And he said, we can't we can't exchange gold for dollars anymore. Suck it in. And the Treasury Secretary John Connolly said, yeah, it's our dollar, but it's your problem. Well, the world had no other medium of exchange to conduct all the transactions. You know, Brazil buying coffee from uh, China, buying coffee from Brazil and Brazil buying Volkswagens from Germany. And so the dollar has endured as the primary international reserve currency ever since then. What does that mean? That means the U.S. can sell dollars to countries who need dollars to conduct their international transactions. If India wanted to buy oil from Saudi Arabia, they needed dollars. If Japan wanted to buy wood from Indonesia, they needed dollars. The U.S. sells those dollars by issuing treasury debts. That is, we sell treasury bonds and bills, and those are functionally dollars. They're fungible international mediums of exchange. Now, why is this important? That ability to sell dollars is what enables us to run our massive budget and trade surpluses. In 1980, 
the United States only had a national debt of $1 trillion. That means the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Civil War, building out the American continent in the 1800s, First World War, the Great Depression, Second World War, and the better half of the Cold War, we had funded with only $1 trillion of debt. Today, the national debt stands at $32 trillion. And that is only made possible because we can sell dollars to other countries in order for them to have international reserve currency. That is about to end. The countries of the global South led by Russia, by China, India, Brazil, a lot of other countries are saying, hey, we can see that this ability of the U.S. to print dollars because it's the international reserve currency, that leads to the U.S. to a lot of abusive behavior. Oh, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Ukraine, should I keep going on? And well, yeah, well, you can't. You can't, Robert, because there is, there's not enough time to go through all of the long, <laughs> long, long list of that. Uh, sadly, the Zoom is telling me it's time to, that we part. I really, I recommend everybody go to commondreams.org right away and get Robert Freeman's article and look at his past writing as well. And go to the project for the global uplift. That's tgup.org, tgup.org, the global uplift project. It looks absolutely fantastic what you're doing, Robert. Thanks so much for coming on today and telling me uh, about that and uh, sharing your article with our audience. Thank you for having me. I hope it's been interesting. And thanks again to Ray McGinnis. You can find his article, Commission Reveals That Trudeau Government Lied About the Nature of Truckers' Protest in Ottawa Last February to Justify Invocation of Emergencies Act at CovertActionMagazine.com. Until the next time, then. That's all the time I've got for this week. And they talked about what they do. Whining
when he said it wasn't fair and his mansion became a collective with all my 